Well, hello, Bestie, and welcome back to the podcast. As always, this is your host, Brayden, and today we're giving you a little bit more of a unique podcast format. We're going to play for you an excerpt of my audiobook from the Unfuck Your Biz book. This is chapter five, all about quarterly taxes. So why are we playing this for you? Well, A, hopefully to sell more copies of my book, just being very transparent with you. So if you love it, Go to unfuckyourbizbook.com and you can get the other uh, 19 chapters. We have an audiobook, ebook, physical book. Um, you can either buy the audiobook and the ebook together for 20 bucks, or you can buy the physical book for $30 and you get all three bundled in one. So unfuckyourbizbook.com. Um, but the other big reason why we're sharing this today is because at the time of releasing this, it should be June 15th. Your Q2 estimated quarterly taxes are due today. Okay, so the day this is released. So if you haven't made your quarterly tax payment yet, you want to make your quarterly tax payment. I also just last week created a mini course, a $10 course called the Quarterly Quickie. It is extremely simple. It's literally just to give you a how-to on how to pay your quarterly tax payments, not how much to pay, just how to pay. So if you're like, all right, I'm ready to pay, but, but where do I go? What website do I go to? How do I do it in my state? Check out our quarterly quickie. That's at www.notavglaw.com forward slash quickie. We will put the link in the show notes as well. Um, and you can go grab that for $10. So you get the course, the book. We're going to give you our audiobook now. Super, super helpful. Hopefully you love it. Let us know. Uh, without any further ado, here we go. Chapter five, quarterly taxes. Taxes. No one really loves them, but we all got to pay them. Once we become self-employed, we take care of our own taxes and we do that through quarterly tax payments. Are you familiar with the time value of money concept? A dollar 50 years ago was worth more than a dollar today. A dollar today is worth more than a dollar 10 years from now. Likewise, a dollar today is generally considered to be more valuable than a dollar three months from now. This is why we always prefer to get our money sooner rather than later. I want to buy my Birkenstocks and La Crosse pots before they go up in price again. Or, you know, I could invest instead and earn some interest. Also, people have bills to pay. You wouldn't sign contracts with 10 clients and say, you can pay me at the end of the year. That's not going to work. You need the money to cash flow your business. The government is really no different. They want their money now because A, the time value of money, and B, they have to pay for stuff. I'm sure in an ideal world, the IRS would like to levy each of our bank accounts to automatically withdraw our tax payments on a daily basis. That's not practical. Instead, we pay taxes on a quarterly basis. Do you have to pay quarterly taxes? Like how none of us have to drive the speed limit? We don't have to pay quarterly taxes, but there's a good chance you may be penalized for not paying them. Here's the actual rule. If you expect to owe at least $1,000 in tax for the taxable year, and you expect your withholding and refundable credits to be less than the smaller of either 90% of the tax to be shown on your return, or 100% of the tax shown on your prior return, when the prior return covered the whole year, you must pay quarterly taxes. Confused? Me too. I always have to read this rule a few times. Here's an example to break it down. Example. 
Greg, in his second year of business, makes $25,000 from his part-time garage business. He also gets a salary for his full-time job. He owes tax of $10,000 on his total income. Greg has $7,000 withheld from his paycheck for his full-time job. In his first year of business, he owed $8,000. Apply the first part of the rule. Does Greg owe at least $1,000 in tax? Yes, he owes $10,000. Now, apply the second rule, which has two parts. Part one, what would 90% of the tax due be? Here, Greg's tax due is $10,000. 90% of that would be $9,000. Part two, what was the total tax due for the prior year? Here, Greg's tax due in the prior year was $8,000. The lesser of those two parts is $8,000. Now, ask whether the amount withheld was less than $8,000. Greg had $7,000 withheld, which is less than $8,000. He must make quarterly tax payments. If Greg had $8,000 withheld, he would not be required to pay quarterly tax, but it would still be advisable for him to set aside the appropriate percentage of his income to eventually pay the tax. Penalties. The IRS has a few different tax penalties that range in amount. The two primary penalties are the late payment penalty and the late filing penalty. A tax return is late and is subject to the late filing pen penalty if a taxpayer fails to meet the April 15th annual deadline or fails to meet the October 15th deadline if and when they file an extension. You may initially think the late payment penalty serves to charge penalties when you fail to pay taxes before those same dates, but that's only partially true. If you're required to pay quarterly taxes, then the penalties start to accrue after the deadline if you fail to pay. By now, you know I love a good example, so let's look at one and see how the late payment penalty works in practice. Let's assume for simplicity that Barb has taxable income of $100,000 and an effective tax rate of 20%. How much does Barb owe in taxes and how much should she pay on a quarterly basis? Do some quick math before moving forward. Answer. Our tax calculation is pretty straightforward. Barb owes tax of 20% of her $100,000 in taxable income, which is $20,000. The IRS wants us to divide that and pay $5,000 in four equal installments quarterly. Now, let's calculate Barb's penalty, assuming that she never made any quarterly tax payments. We will also assume that Barb filed her taxes on April 15th for the previous tax year and paid the full tax on the same date. The quarterly tax due dates are April 15th, June 15th, September 15th, and January 15th. Each payment is for the prior quarter. When we break this down, we can see that Barb paid her first quarter taxes exactly one year late. Remember, they were due on April 15th the year before. Her second payment was 10 months late, the third payment was seven months late, and the final payment was three months late. We will disregard compound interest for simplicity. Let's look at the first quarter payment. The penalty is 0.05% per month. 0.05% of $5,000 is $25. That payment was 12 months late, so we multiply 25 by 12 months, which is $300. We do the same calculation for the other three payments, but we multiply that $25 by 10 months, 7 months, and 3 months. Once all the math is done, the total penalty is $800. Please note that we're doing a simplified calculation with the goal of achieving a conceptual understanding of quarterly taxes. Let's do a bit more analysis. 
Barb's tax was $20,000. Her penalty was $800, which is about 4% of the total tax due. Generally, whenever I break down the math, the failure to pay quarterly taxes equals between 3 and 5% of the total tax due. You can use that as a good rule of thumb slash shortcut if you ever want to break down your friend's tax penalties as a party trick, as one does when seeking cool points. My top tip. As we can see from the example, the penalty for failure to pay quarterly taxes isn't astronomical. It's far less than almost all forms of consumer debt. This is why I always share that it's never worth going into personal debt in order to pay your quarterly taxes. If it comes down to paying quarterlies and putting your bills on a credit card or paying those bills, you'd probably want to do the latter if you're not confident you can quickly pay down the debt. Time to put this in context. Mary is a wedding planner. She has peaks and valleys in income, which is totally normal in her wedding biz. But when the COVID-19 lockdown hit in spring 2020, it put a major damper on our business and personal finances. Inquiries and bookings dried up, some clients refused to pay, and one client demanded a refund because her wedding was canceled. Due to COVID-19, the IRS pushed the deadline for quarter two taxes to July 15th. However, Mary was still worried she wouldn't be able to make the payment. The income she was still receiving was mostly going towards business bills, and she was dipping into her small savings to pay for personal bills, doing her best not to put any payments on credit. Luckily, Mary is one of my students, so she learned all of these concepts. She decided to implement a plan to pause her quarterly tax savings, commit to cut some expenses, and made a plan to start setting aside 30% of all client payments rather than her typical 17%. By doing so, she knew that she'd be caught up on tax payments within a few months. She'd also end up paying about $100 in late payment penalties. Mary made this decision because that $100 was less than the credit card interest she would rack up, and it was also worth the peace of mind to keep her bank account in the black. I encourage you not to play games with your quarterlies unless absolutely necessary because it's a slippery slope unless you're a savvy financial whiz like my friend. One of my friends used to argue with me about quarterly taxes regularly. He thought they were dumb and pointless. You see, this friend was an avid investor. He bought and sold stocks, cryptocurrency, you name it. He also has an S-corp and does quite well in business. His argument was that he could earn twice as much as his investments than the IRS would charge him in late payment penalties. He'd argue, why pay the IRS $10,000 now when I can invest it make $1,000, pay the tax later, plus the penalty, and still have some left over. My answer, you can, but that's a risky game, and then you have to pay short-term capital gains tax on the investment, so you may not end up with much of a net positive. Long story short, if you're an investment whiz, you should also be tax-savvy enough to crunch the numbers and make a calculated decision. If that's not you, pay your damn taxes. Here's my main takeaway for you. Even if you won't be penalized or if the penalty is low, it's always a good idea to pay your quarterlies. My advice is this. You need to save your tax bill even if you don't have to pay it in installments on a quarterly basis. If you have to save it, you might as well pay it. Also, no one wants to file their taxes and get a $12,000 tax bill. A slippery slope. You may be convinced about the importance of quarterly taxes, but if not, let me give you a hypothetical. This isn't really one person's story, rather it's an amalgamation of dozens of business owners I have worked with. Let's call our fictional taxpayer Katya. 
Katya starts her business as a life coach. For the first year of her business, Katya isn't aware that quarterly taxes are a thing. She never thought about saving for taxes. In year one, Katya earns $22,000. She's pumped. Her goal was really just to get a couple of clients and start building up her testimonials. She took Marie Forleo's B-School course, grabbed a couple of social media programs from Jenna Kutcher, built a website on Squarespace, and had a few other monthly expenses. In total, she spent about $6,000 on her business, leaving her net business income of $16,000. After her standard deduction and qualified business income deduction, her taxable income was only $600. Katya only ends up owing $150. Bills are still tight for Katya, but right around the time she filed her taxes, she lands another new client. She thinks, awesome, I'll just use part of the client's retainer toward the tax. No problem. At this point, Katya's friend gives her the lowdown on quarterly taxes. Katya is well-intentioned, but she has bills to pay, wants to make a couple more investments in her business, and tells herself she'll start saving in a few months. She doesn't. The following tax year rolls around. Over the year, her income doubles after expenses and deductions. Her taxable income is now $30,000. She's disappointed she never got around to saving, but she keeps telling herself, it won't be too bad. Last year, I only paid $150. But now tax on $30,000 of taxable income comes out to $8,000. That's an oh shit moment. She panics. After thinking about it for a week, she decides she'll market really hard that month. Since she's let her expenses proportionally increase along with her income, she's still not making a ton of profit. With a promotion and a month of hustle, she scraps together $4,000 for taxes. She creates an installment agreement to pay down the other $4,000 over the next 12 months. The problem is that now she's making monthly payments toward the back taxes without saving for next year's taxes. She makes even more that year, files taxes for year three, and piles that tax debt onto her balance, and the cycle continues. This is the slippery slope with taxes I see every day. Business owners tell themselves, I'll take care of that when I'm making more. But every time we get more money, we get normalized to it. We increase our spending and nothing really changes. This cycle is a big part of why I created the Unfuck Your Biz framework. If you're reading this, you're likely in one of three positions right now. You're either a new business owner who hasn't started earning income and therefore don't owe any back tax. In this case, you're well ahead of the curve. Read this book and implement the steps. As an established entrepreneur, you're either, you either do or do not have back taxes. If you do have back taxes, you'll get help with that in chapter nine. You can implement my tips there to get caught up. If you don't have back taxes, keep doing what you're doing or make some improvements on your system using the tips in this book. Quarterly Tax Estimation Guide. In this section, I walk you through the step-by-step -step process I use to help my students estimate their quarterly taxes. Luckily, with all the math we've done thus far, we're like 80% of the way there. All you need to do now is consider some additional factors. For students. This guide can be more easily explained with visuals in a workbook format, which you can access in the supplemental workbook. I've also included a link to a Google Sheet that will help you make your calculations much simpler. I recommend reading this section first and doing the calculation manually with the workbook. This will help give you a solid conceptual understanding before using the spreadsheet to double check your math and for a shortcut anytime you want to recalculate. In this guide, we do our best to estimate what percentage of gross business income you should be saving on all the money earned in order to pay your quarterly taxes. The goal is to help you save and pay them such that when you file during tax season, you won't owe any additional taxes. 
Step one, estimate income. First, we need to figure out our estimated income for the tax year and divide it into buckets. These buckets are different from the tax buckets I mentioned earlier. We're creating three buckets, net self-employment income, employment income, and other income. Remember, we are looking forward, not backward. You don't need to calculate last year's taxes. That's what our tax return is for. Instead, we're estimating what your tax will be on this year's income or next year's or both. Those of us who lack future telling abilities must instead use the info we have to extrapolate income and expenses. Estimating income is no exact science, but there are a few ways to get started. You can look at your previous year's tax return or last month's income and extrapolate from there. Also, consider seasonal differences in income. Do your best to estimate yours and move forward working with what you've got. Every December, I do a detailed breakdown of my net income. This helps me with goal setting, but also informs my quarterly tax savings. Earlier in the book, I shared my streams of income. Here's an example of how I might set up my goals. I do a push for Unfuck Your Biz twice per year, once in November or December, and once in late spring. Based on past launches, I know I can typically anticipate that about 1% of my email list will join the program. On average, I have 100 new subscribers per month. Therefore, in December 2021, I expected to grow my list from 6,000 to about 7,200 by November 2022. I could stop there and estimate 1% of $7,200 as my number of potential students slash sales, which would be 72. I would add those 72 members to my existing member base to find my monthly recurring revenue. But we have some more metrics to consider. Business, when done well, is kind of like good gossip. It spreads and grows organically. One person tells two friends about the drama, those two tell two others, and so on. In business, we get more referrals as we get more clients and customers. We also get on bigger platforms with a bigger reach. I do my best to project this growth based on the trajectory of my podcast, social channels, and speaking events. I may anticipate 200 subscribers per month for quarter one and 300 per month for quarter two. Side note, before I continue, um, I just wanted to mention, I might actually add this to the book because I haven't, we, we haven't fully turned it over to my typesetter yet. So I might add a paragraph about my profit report. So if you don't listen to the Unfuck Your Biz with Braden podcast, highly encourage you to do that. I do a profit report breakdown of my own numbers on the podcast each month. And it's hard to explain, but since I started doing that a year and a half ago, I've become much, much better at doing projections in my own business. And it really just has to do with the fact that I have to prep for like an hour to do the podcast every month. So it's just my process of looking at your own numbers. So if you do this, I'm not saying you need to record a profit report, but if you start doing your bookkeeping, like I teach you to do in this book and looking at your numbers in a similar manner, you'll become much better about these projections as well. Okay, back to the book. When projecting your income, consider the natural trajectory of growth you have had and plan for what you expect in the coming year. After all the number crunching, my list target for my November 22 launch may be closer to 8,000. With a 1% conversion in mind, that'd be 80 students. Now I can estimate my launch revenue. I repeat this process for each of my programs to project my goal revenue for the program. If that all sounds too complex, you can always just start with last year's income and make your best estimate of how much you expect your revenue to change. For example, if I make $200,000 in 2022 and hope for a 20% increase in 2023, that'd be $240,000. Once you go through this process, you'll ideally know which number to put in your bucket for self-employment income. 
The reason we're dividing income into three buckets is due to all the fun FICA and self-employment tax stuff we covered in an earlier chapter. If you're married, include a total of both you and your spouse's income in each category. Bucket number one, self-employment income, includes all income that is subject to self-employment tax. Simple enough, but don't overlook 1099 income. Bucket number two is an employment income. This is any income that you or your spouse earns from an employer. More specifically, it's any income that has already been subjected to tax withholdings. If you're a Y person like me, here's the reasons for the buckets. Our biz income is any and all income subject to both income taxes and self-employment taxes. The money in bucket two, you pay income taxes on, and rather than self-employment tax, you and your employer split the taxes for Medicare and Social Security. The income in bucket number three is not subject to any taxes with regard to Medicare and Social Security. Note, throughout our tax estimation steps, I use one fact pattern to provide contextual examples. Barb made $15,000 last year in her first year in business. She had $5,000 in expenses. This year, she expects to double both her income and expenses. She also has a part-time job and expects to make $25,000 there as a W-2 employee. Her wife has a full-time gig as a W-2 employee where she makes $75,000. Barb's wife also does freelance work and get, expects to get a 1099 for $10,000 in income. Lastly, Barb and her wife have a rental property from which they expect to profit $10,000. Barb's buckets would look like this. Barb's self-employment income bucket equals her gross income, $30,000, plus her wife's 1099 income, $10,000, less expenses, $10,000, which totals $30,000. The employment income is made up of Barb's $25,000 and her wife's $75,000 in employment income, totaling $100,000. Their other income bucket is the $10,000 profit from their rental property. Step two, find total and taxable income. First, add up your three buckets to find your total income. Easy peasy. Then find taxable income. We know from chapter four that to find taxable income, we subtract adjustments, the qualified business income deduction, and the standard or itemized deductions. If you're not sure if you have any adjustments or itemized deductions, deduct your standard to start. Remember, fewer deductions means more tax. We'd rather estimate and save on the higher end than fall short on our taxes. I'm using the 2018 standard deductions for easier math. 12,000 for single taxpayers, 24,000 married, 18,000 head of household. By totaling Barb's different income buckets, her total income is $140,000. Barb's standard deduction is $24,000. Her qualified business income deduction is 20% of the net self-employment income of $30,000, which equals $6,000. Barb had no adjustments. Consider those deductions. Taxable income becomes $110,000. Step three, calculate income tax. In this step, we calculate the income tax on the taxable income. Make sure to do a search for the tax brackets applicable to the year in which you're calculating. For our example, we will use these brackets. Now we have an image in the book. You'll want to take a look at that, uh, at the brackets there for these examples. We know that Barb's taxable income is $110,000. She files jointly with her wife. We can see by looking at the bracket that they fall into the 20... 
Okay, I messed up. We know that Barb's taxable income is $110,000. She files jointly with her wife. We can see by looking at the tax bracket that they fall into the 22% bracket. We subtract $78,950 from $110,000 and get $31,050. We then calculate 22% on that chunk of income, which is $6,837. The bracket tells us that the total tax from the first two buckets of income is $9,086. We total $6,837 and $9,086 to get $16,017. Step four, calculate self-employment tax. Next, calculate self-employment tax on each of our three buckets. Remember, it's 15.3% up to $138,000 and 2.9% thereafter. Luckily, Barb's income is below that pain in the ass $138,000 threshold. We calculate 15.3% on her self-employment income of $30,000, which is $4,950. Then we calculate 7.65% on her employment income of $100,000, which is $7,650. The two chunks of tax total $12,240. Step five total taxes. This is our simplest step. Yay. Add your totals from steps three and four. Barb's taxes were $16,017 and $12,240. That totals $28,257. Step six, subtract credits. I have learned through working with my students that there's one big credit I shouldn't overlook, the child tax credit. My husband and I are childless, so this credit often slips past me. Recently, I had two students with income rel relatively similar to Barb's. However, one student has two children. The other does not have kids. With the child tax credit, the one student's tax was actually about $4,000 less. Considering that led to 4% less she needed to be saving for quarterly taxes, that's a pretty substantial amount. So if you have children, focus on this credit. You can qualify for the child tax credit if your income is less than $400,000 married filing joint or $200,000 otherwise. Side note, just note that all of these tax numbers I'm, I'm giving, like the caps, the caps for certain credits, the standard deductions, the tax brackets, these are all um, based on the year that I wrote the first edition of this book, and they update every single year. We're not updating the numbers. We're not doing a new edition to the book every tax year for new numbers, so Use them as ballparks, but if you're relying on any math, always look for current year numbers. Okay, end of break. Note that these limits are subject to change. Taxpayers get a $2,000 credit per child. If you have 10 kids, you get a $20,000 You get $20,000 in child tax credits and also hopefully a lot of help from family and friends. Please also note that only part of this credit is non-refundable. There are also specific requirements you must meet to claim the child tax credit. If you're interested in learning more about that and other limitations, do a quick search. I bring up the child tax credit because it's relatively easy to calculate and is a pretty substantial benefit. There's also a credit called the child independent care credit when you pay for child care. There's also the earned income credit, which is available to lower income individuals who work. Those tend to be the big three, but there are several other less common credits. 
If you want to have a super accurate quarterly tax calculation, feel free to look into these more. I err on the side of simplification because I know you don't want to read a treatise on tax, and also because it's better to underestimate tax benefits and overestimate tax. Let's assume that Barb and her wife also have one kid. They get a $2,000 child tax credit, which is a dollar for dollar reduction in tax. Now their total tax is $26,257. Step seven, find federal tax percentage. Now we find the effective tax rate for federal taxes. To do that, take a step back and find gross income. Remember, gross income is income before any expenses. So take the total income and add back in any expenses that had been deducted. From there, divide the total federal tax due by the gross income. Barb's total income was $140,000. We add back in Barb's expenses of $10,000 to get gross income of $150,000. Then we divide her tax of $26,257 by $150,000 to find the effective tax rate of 17.5%. In other words, roughly 17.5% of every dollar Barb and her wife bring into the house is turned over to the IRS for federal tax. Now we need to lump in state taxes too. Step eight, calculate state tax percentage. We talked about state taxes back in chapter four. Revisit that material if you need a refresher. Here, we're using our shortcut if applicable. Since we already calculated the federal percentage, you can figure the state percentage as one-fourth or one-fifth of that. Alternatively, if you're in a flat tax state, the process is a bit different. You have to calculate the tax first and then figure the effective tax rate. Here's a quick example. Albert has taxable income of $15,000 and gross income of $40,000. If he lives in a state with a flat tax of 5%, his tax would be 5% of $15,000 or $750. The effective state tax rate is $750 divided by gross income of $40,000, which rounds up to 2%. Lastly, if you're in a state with no income tax, write down a big fat zero. We will assume that Barb is a resident of California, which is a high tax state. Thus, we calculate her state tax as one-fourth of her federal percentage of 17.5%. Quick calculator math and rounding tell us that her state tax percentage is about 4.5%. Step 9. Find total tax percentage. We saved maybe our simplest step for last. Add your state percentage to your federal percentage. Barb's state percentage is 4.5% and her federal percentage is 17.5%, which totals 22%. We will call this her quarterly tax percentage. Now add your totals. Put this on a sticky note and use it as your bookmark. We want to cement it into your noggin. In further chapters, I ask you to recall your quarterly tax percentage. Quick summary. Remember, this total percentage is how much of your gross business income you should be setting aside for taxes. Also, mentally note that your percentage may change as your total income increases or decreases. For example, if you were to cash out a trust or IRA, or you were to win some money or otherwise acquire more income, other than by gift, your income would increase. Not only do you need to pay tax on that income, but you need to consider that it will also increase your tax bracket. So you need to set aside more of your business income for quarterlies. Revisiting spousal income. 
As you can see from the examples, the more sources of income you have, the more complex quarterly taxes are to estimate. The same is true when we introduce spousal income. The math gets really muddy when both spouses have multiple sources of income, particularly when maintaining separate finances. I'll illustrate with two more examples. The first is a highlight of my own personal taxes. My husband and I married in late December. U.S. tax law allows married couples who were married for any part of the year to file as married filing joint for the whole year. That whole year, I was in grad school working about eight hours each week at West Elm. My husband had a healthy standard salary for a government attorney in California. I probably earned less than $10,000 in the year. He went from years of paying taxes as a single person to filing as a married person, in which case his expected refund would stay the same, assuming his now spouse, me, were earning about the same amount. I wasn't. In fact, I was functionally a dependent on his tax return, but he still had hefty withholdings the whole year. The result was a substantial refund. No complaints. It paid for our honeymoon in Maui. But as I started making money, the story became different. Our joint income affects my tax rate on my self-employment income. Often tax preparers advise self-employed folks like you and me to pay just enough in quarterly taxes to avoid in order to not owe taxes. Newly married individuals should prep for this, particularly if one spouse is used to or expects a refund. These strange dynamics can also skew our image of our own business's profitability. To show how, meet Chassis Bell, owner of Chassis Bell Design. When Chassie joined Unfuck Your Biz, she had a successful design business and also earned income through a side gig as a freelance dance instructor. Her husband had a comfortable full-time job from which he received a W-2. He also had a freelance gig and together they owned a rental property. In total, that was five streams of income coming into the household. They'd also occasionally have stock gains and other one-off sources of income. Chassie was always told to set aside about 30% of her business income, but she shared that after getting her estimates from her tax preparer, paying the tax, and filing her annual returns, it felt like she was paying 50% of her business income to taxes. Coupling that with business expenses, she was taking home less than 30% of gross revenue. She'd look at her place in the federal tax bracket around 33% and the state tax bracket 11% and figured 44% total is close enough to 50%. That must be the cost of running a business. At the end of the day, her hourly wage felt like about $15 per hour. She contemplated why even bother doing all the hard work for that much. When Chassie joined the program, she went through the full quarterly tax calculation process and determined her household's total tax percentage was 28%. In other words, 28% of all the income brought into the home went back to pay taxes. What she hadn't considered before was that four out of five sources of income weren't subject to tax withholdings. Effectively, Chassie's business was paying all the quarterly taxes on her business income, her freelance income, her husband's freelance income, and their rental property. This isn't wrong per se, and I didn't ask Chassie details about her family's banking or money ethos, so the rest of this is purely hypothetical. If all income goes into one joint spousal bank account, does it really matter who's paying the taxes? Probably not. Does it help to have an understanding of these nuances anyway? Ideally, the way to handle a situation like Chassis is to set aside the total tax percentage on each stream of income. When you're crunching the numbers, thinking about your business's profit, having an existential internal monologue on your financial role in the marriage, 
Things like we all do, taxes play a huge part. This is especially true if you're putting 50% of the hard-earned money from the business towards taxes. In summary, take time to learn how taxes work. It'll bring clarity. Chapter wrap-up. You should now be able to answer the million-dollar question. How much must I save for quarterly taxes? Consider this your certification for step two of unfucking your taxes. To build even more tax calculating prowess, we work through some comprehensive examples in the appendix, putting it all together, after which you get your figurative tax diploma and graduate onto the legal basics. Take action. Use the quarterly tax estimation guide to calculate your own tax savings percentage for the current year. Determine whether you must make quarterly tax payments, work through Appendix D, decide if you will make quarterly tax payments, you learn precisely how in Chapter 11. For students, watch the chapter videos, go through the quarterly tax estimation guide in the program supplement, use the quarterly tax calculator to double check your math. Key takeaways. It's never a bad idea to start saving for quarterly taxes, even if you don't have to. There are penalties for failure to pay quarterly taxes, but they're not wildly high. Don't go into debt. Save smart. Hey there. Before you go, I wanted to give a quick thanks. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. If you loved it, I would love for you to take a screenshot of the episode or snap a quick selfie while you are listening. Share it on social and give me a tag. It'll help other kick-ass entrepreneurs like yourself find the show. That's it for today. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Meanwhile, let's roll up our sleeves and unfuck that biz.